Welcome to OB Boss Babes, where we showcase female entrepreneurs, working professionals, community builders, and local makers and creators. Our podcast is all about babe supporting babes, learning about community builders, and of course, female empowerment. Get inspired to the only podcast in the Ottawa Valley that showcases local babes in our community and join our tribe of boss babes where everyone is welcome. Enterprise Renfrew County is a great place to start, whether you have a solid business concept or you're exploring becoming an entrepreneur. Their dedicated business consultant provides entrepreneurs with the tools that they need to start and grow their business. You'll receive valuable and knowledgeable information, such as how to register your business, creating a business plan, market research, financing, and other business-related inquiries. Book your call with their business consultation expert at 613-432-6848 and launch your business today. Hello, 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 and welcome to the OV Boss Babes podcast. This babe has always been very passionate about supporting individuals with a variety of needs, and she has a bachelor's degree in child and youth care and is a certified applied behavior analysis ABA parent trainer to prove it. After relocating to the Ottawa Valley in 2018, she quickly realized that services tailored to neurodivergent individuals was greatly needed. But what exactly is ABA? What are person-centered programs specifically for children with autism, dyslexia, ADHD, and other neurodivergent learners? And how does she and her team of therapists recognize each individual's unique skills and help you as a caregiver or parent help them to succeed? Leave it to me to ask all the questions and she will give us the skills we need to help overcome and embrace the variety of challenges that they may face. Please welcome Erin Curtis from Dragonfly Family and Learning Services in Killaloo to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. Erin, <laughs> I know you've been following the podcast for a while and you've been so very patient. I almost want to say that you've been one of my dedicated listeners and followers since the very get-go. I feel like when I first posted in Facebook, you know, that I had started this podcast, you were like one of the first ones that's there one of the first ones with your hand raised being like, hello, I would love to come on. So I thank you so much for your very long wait, but here we are. We're finally doing it. Here we are. <laughs> so Aaron, you relocated to the Ottawa Valley with your family in 2018. So tell me, Killaloo, what made you guys come there? Uh, so I guess like the short version is the house prices, um, but the long version is that we had always kind of known my husband and I both grew up in the GTA and we knew that we wanted to get out of the city. Um, we probably started looking at houses and property for the very first time, like back in 2012. Um, so it was a long search, uh, but ultimately when we started sort of looking out this way, um, we sort of fell in love with the area and the first drive out to Killaloo, we drove um, like up through Maynooth and Cumbermere um, and like down Old Barry's Bay Road and like it's such a lovely drive. Um, yeah, and we just sort of fell in love with the area and, and the prices are, are nice too. It's crazy. There are so many female owned businesses out in Killaloo too. I feel like I'm discovering this whole new area as, uh, as I learn more about businesses and everything like that. Like there's a lot of you out there, even, you know, compared to Madawaska Valley, which is a larger area. It's, it's definitely a little like entrepreneurial pocket. I noticed that too, as we sort of started to get the, to know the community more. 
So Erin, let's get right into your business. You provide high quality caregiver support, recognizing each individual's unique skills, life experience, and goals. And those living in small rural communities such as ours can be limited in services, having to travel to Ottawa, Kingston, even Toronto to access these specific therapies and programs. So because of these limitations, is that what made you want to launch Dragonfly Learning Services? Yeah, so um, this is what I'd been doing in the city prior to moving. I was working in um, ABA programs. I had done some in-home ones, but mostly center-based ones. Um, and when I moved here, the plan was for me to sort of stay home with my daughter. But then when I sort of learned that there wasn't anything available, I was like, okay, well, I can't just sit on these skills and not do anything about it. Um, so that was sort of the drive to start. So what were you doing before opening your business? I was a stay-at-home mom. So my daughter was born in the summer of 2017. Um, and then we moved here fall of 2018. And then I started the business January of 2019. Um, let's get right into it then. What is ABA therapy? So um, I kind of pulled the sort of like textbook definition for you. Um, but basically applied behavior analysis therapy is a therapy, therapeutic treatment modality that's based on the science of behavior and learning. Uh, it then looks at how behavior works, how behavior is influenced by the environment around the person, as well as how learning, which is a behavior, happens. And then this information is applied to real life situations. Now, ABA therapy is most commonly used with autistic individuals, but it's not the only application of the science. Some parents, Erin, view it as controversial, saying that this type of therapy is harmful. Why is that? So for sure, ABA is absolutely a controversial um, therapeutic technique, um, and it can be harmful. And I want to be very clear that like it, it absolutely can be. It's not, um, you know, what, what you've potentially read in your research um, is definitely things that happen. Um, and if you think about the definition that I gave you, like that's that's fairly broad. It's basically looking at how learning and behavior works and applying it. It's um, it leaves a lot up to interpretation. And that meant that historically and even currently, there's providers that do use the science to sort of target behaviors or goals that either shouldn't be targeted or like targeting them in a way that's like downright ethical. So um, historically, like a lot of mental health services. Uh, the viewpoint was just very like you're broken and here I am as like a, a mental health professional with all of this education and I'm going to fix you, um, which we, we see that in other industries too and, and we know that that's something that that is an ongoing progress. Um, but in terms of some of the things that are happening currently that I want to sort of draw attention to because I think it's really important to not downplay it um, is there are providers in the states now there's one center in particular that's been in the news lately and it's it's um being being very big but there are providers that use something called shock therapy um and like holly i i know for you and me like what people are shocking children or adults to to adjust behavior like no bueno for me there's there's no way i would ever ever be cool with anything like that um but it is really important to acknowledge that that is something that happens um and it's something that we as an industry and as professionals need to be really clear that like this is not okay this is not an appropriate application of the science it it completely violates the um board certified behavior analyst um ethics code first of all um but it also in my opinion really takes away from why i do what i do so the 
I'm here to help families and help my clients to best thrive in their life. So to me, employing like a punishment like shock therapy or even, um, you know, like other sort of like physical like spankings and things like that that are used in the sort of like more mainstream parenting. Um, to me, that just doesn't align with the purpose of why I'm here and, and, and my sort of mission. But it is really important to acknowledge that even like in my learning and things that I've done, um, I started in the industry in 2013, there was things that I was taught that the people that taught me don't do anymore. So it's, it's, it's like any um, mental health industry, any profession really, where you need to be constantly educating yourself and, and learning. Um, so I think that's kind of a really, that's a big part of why it's controversial. Um, and then the other piece in, in terms of the intersectionality, intersectionality, um, controversiality pieces that like most of psychology, the initial brains behind ABA were primarily white, able-bodied, neurotypical men who thought that curing autism was the best approach instead of one, having a society where we actually are embracing the variety of neurotypes that exist because that's the reality. Um, and two, actually working with individuals to develop skills to help them thrive. Um, so I, I love that you asked that because I think some people kind of shy away from that piece, but I think it's really important to know the flaws, the same as I would want to know that um, like my counselor that I work with is aware of the biases that they may have, is aware of the ways that um, you know their practice may be harmful, is constantly educating themselves on the ways in which they can do better. Um, but there are definitely still families who don't feel that ABA is the best fit for them. And I think that that's also a valid choice because it's not gonna be the right fit for everyone. I can definitely understand parents' reservations about putting their children into ABA therapy, knowing that things like shock therapy were a thing. And um, just to kind of touch on really quickly, I actually used to work in the developmental services sector. And I remember reading and educating myself on past practices that were done with, with children and adults with developmental disabilities and hearing about how they were segregated and how they were beaten and how they were, you know, inappropriate words like the R word, which we, you know, would toss around back, you know, just a couple of years ago, like even the black eyed peas using let's get the R word was actually a thing and heard on the radio. And so I feel like we as a society have come along so far, but to know that shock therapy is still happening in the world world to correct behaviors is not only mind-blowing and shocking in itself, but it breaks my heart to know that a child is being tortured to correct their behavior because of something that is beyond their control for a learning capability. No, it, it's something that, um, you know, my team and I have discussed, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm going to get choked up even just thinking about it. Um, but my team and I talk about it and talk about the treatment and it really does it it really hurts us that people are taking this position of helping and harming instead mm -hmm. yeah anyways let's let's move on from that because i know that that's really a hard topic to discuss and i know that we can probably go into this all day so let's talk about what is exactly a neurodivergent learner um, this is a new concept to me, Erin. I've, I've heard of it, but I don't fully understand what it is. So can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, I find it's, it's, um, it, 
absolutely wasn't taught from to me when I was in in my undergrad and I graduated in 2015. So it, it's 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 for sure a new idea. Um, definitely on the practitioner side, I don't think it's maybe as new on the um, actual neurodivergent person side. But basically, a neurodivergent person is someone whose neurotype um, differs or varies from like what we would consider the standard or like the average um, neurotype or like how their cognition. Um, work. So this can include autism and ADHD, uh, but I think you kind of alluded to a little bit earlier. It can also include things like obsessive compulsive disorder, dyslexia, um, bipolar, things like that. Just the idea that their their brain is is functioning on like a fundamentally different level. Um, and, and I like this approach because I think it really um, frames everybody in a way of like, they're not bad people. They're not bad children. Their brain is, is legitimately functioning differently. And we need to keep that in mind with, with everything that we do with them. So Erin, do you know if more teachers are implementing more practices to accommodate and support children in the classroom? I have to talk about my own experience with this because nothing bothered me more than the children in my class in, in public school growing up that were segregated and separated from the classroom because they weren't the, uh, you know, they were not, not to say advanced learners or regular learners. And I hate using that term, but they were the slower and I'm using air quotes, people I'm using, um, you know, they were air quotes slower kids that had to be segregated away and they were in a different kind of group learning separately because they weren't able to again air quotes keep up with the regular learners and I hated that and Aaron I remember actually reading one of your posts where you alluded to the fact that teachers would actually pair you up with students that were not able to quickly catch on as others might be able to and you were able to take the time to sit with them and I thought Oh my gosh, I remember actually seeing, you know, the smarter kids being paired up with the, the slower learners in the classroom. Um, and they weren't always able to get that individualized one-on-one -on -one experience. They were just segregated off, given different workloads, and they weren't, you know, they were just kind of discarded. So circling back to my main question that I have for you, are you seeing that more kids in the classroom are, are being taken seriously and, and understanding their learning capabilities and difficulties that they might be having versus being shipped off to another room and, and just given a different workload? I, I think um, in general, yes, there's, I think, a lot more education for teachers around um, different types of learning for sure, but even just the idea that, you know, like, kids are going to have different needs and they're going to learn at different paces. I think, um, honestly, the reality of the situation here in Ontario is that teachers, for the most part, are doing their best in a situation where they've got so many kids in their classroom that... I think like they're not even able to give the individualized support and teaching they want to the kids that do learn the way that, um, you know, like that the, the curriculum is set up to be learned. Um, so as much as I would love to, you know, answer your question and say, Holly, you know, those kids aren't being left behind anymore. Um, they, they are, it's just, it's different. Um, so they're not being segregated off to classes as much. Um, but they're definitely still in those classes struggling. And I think, you know, like I really feel for these teachers because I get these kids one-on-one, -on -one, my team get them one-on-one, -on -one. we get them in their home where they're like comfy and relaxed. Um, it's, it is, it is such an uphill battle that like, I, I really feel for them. Um, 
the school boards are getting better at supporting them. I will, I will say that they're getting more specialists in to do assessments, to do support, to, you know, maybe to pull the kids into whether it's speech or OT. Um, but I think, I think there's still a long way to go. Um, and, and it, I will say it's, it's probably one of the main things that parents ask for our help with outside of directly their kids is, can you help us with the school in terms of getting a better idea of what's going on or how we can help or what the behaviors look like and things like that. Um, and it's something that I'm also really passionate about on top of the sort of working with parents is, is liaisoning with the school and saying, hey, this is what works in our one-to-one -one setting. So instead of you guys having to spend a bunch of time and resources doing trial and error on what could work, here's the things that work for us. Maybe they'll work. And if they do, great. I've saved you a bunch of time, hopefully a bunch of stress. The kid's doing better in school. It's a win for everyone. Um, it's it's not the greatest solution, but it's it is unfortunately not. Um, I don't think it's something that's going away anytime soon in terms of those kids still having struggles at school. Um, it's definitely getting better, but I think if teachers had at least 10 less kids in a classroom, they'd, they'd probably be a lot more successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're seeing the abundance of of overflow of students in the classroom. Obviously, the pandemic was horrible for learning for the virtual learning. I mean, kids weren't even getting the full one on one attention, even with parents at home, because they were trying to juggle their own jobs for those that were staying at home, or they had to go to daycare or a babysitter was coming in because they still had to go to work. Anyways, again, another side conversation. It's just our, our education system has just basically been put on pause for the last few years and everyone's still just trying to get back to that sense of normalcy and back into routines and stuff again. But I'm glad to hear that improvements are being made and that we are focusing individualized support as much as we can on the students. So that's, at least we're making some headway there. So Erin, I imagine that many of your clients are on the autism spectrum. So when do signs of autism begin to appear in a child? Like at what age? And what are the early signs that a child might be autistic? So it's definitely um, being that it's a spectrum, like there's a lot of different variants in terms of what um, what you're going to see. Um, and Holly, what I'll do when we're done talking today is I'll send you a link so you can include it in your podcast notes because the government of Canada does have like a public health web page that sort of breaks down the signs by age. And like if you're sort of seeing a, a, most of these markers at this age, um, potentially talk to your pediatrician. Um, but for the most part, you're, it's, there, it can kind of present in a couple of different ways in terms of when you start to see it. There's kids where you'll see it right from day one. So I've talked to families where they're like, no, we knew from, from pretty early on that something was up. They didn't show a lot of the same like early baby social cues, um, smiling at parents, eye contact, babbling, that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's situations where parents will see regressions. Um, and this is where I find it's really challenging for parents because their kids will develop seemingly totally typically up until a certain point. And then sometimes it's overnight. Sometimes it's over a couple of weeks, all of a sudden they'll lose like 40 to 60% of the skills that they were demonstrating. Um, I find that if that does happen, that usually is like in the toddler years when that's, if, if they see that type of regression where they were like typically developing, um, and then there's those who are completely missed, who didn't show signs um, similar to, you know, like the, the undiagnosed ADHD adults um, who were probably seen as like quirky as kids and teens. Um, and they kind of flew under the radar. 
Um, those are those kids that weren't segregated in a class, but maybe potentially fell behind and nobody said anything because they followed the rules and they didn't ruffle any feathers and they didn't toss desks or any of those things that make all of the people at the school um, want to make a change happen really quickly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of a mixed bag in terms of what to see, but I, I find a lot of parents, um, if it's your first, looking at the, that government webpage is your best bet. If you have other kids, you'll, you'll see the difference. Um, most parents, if they have an older kid that doesn't have autism and then their younger one does, they're like, oh yeah, we noticed right away. Um, whereas I find for parents, if it's their first, it might take a little bit longer for them to notice the signs. Um, but I do really encourage parents, really and truly, there's nothing wrong with getting an assessment and finding out your kid doesn't have autism. It really sucks to find out that you ignored signs, didn't get an assessment, and waited, and didn't get funding for years. Mm -hmm. So push, tell your pediatrician, get an assessment. If they if say, hey, it's not autism, okay. So now you know. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of parents, there's so much guilt over not knowing earlier. And it's not their fault because pediatricians, doctors, they say, oh, wait, wait until they're 18 months. Wait until they start school. If you're wondering, push and get an assessment. Erin, you're making me emotional over here, just kind of hearing the emotions in your voice. Is this, do you mind me asking, is this, um, is this a personal experience for you? Um, a little bit. So I have, I don't know, I would say multiple people in my family that are undiagnosed ADHD. Um, and they all have struggled at different stages. Um, and then a lot of my clients, I, I would say most of the parents really feel a lot of guilt. And it's so hard for me to not want to wrap them up in a big hug mm -hmm. and say, it's not your fault. Somebody you said they knew better than you said you were wrong. Um, so yeah, for me, that's a hard part. That's why I love working with parents, but oh, they all make me cry so much and I love them so much. Oh, Erin, what you just relayed to me, um, I think is going to resonate with a lot of parents and caregivers listening to this podcast episode. Um, I'm going to be honest as well. Um, our daughter was, was showing a few signs of autism. We weren't sure. We weren't sure what to look for. And again, like you had mentioned earlier, it's, it's a whole new element when it's your first child. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's a whole new element, regardless of what number of children you have and, and what child it is, um, because it's a whole new experience, especially if you've never gone through it yourself before. Um, but what you, you said, you know, looking into it right away, getting it diagnosed early, as early as possible in their early years, as soon as you start noticing signs that maybe your child might be a little off or, or doing things differently and, and you're Googling everything. And instead of worrying about it, going and getting an assessment from a pediatrician or the family doctor, you know, it just kind of crosses off that checklist, whether, whether they do or they don't. And then you get the resources like yourself and your team to be able to learn how to manage that behavior and to effectively be the best parent you can to your child to direct them, uh, in that best way. Another thing I've noticed too, um, 
we get library books all the time. And I just noticed that the latest Sesame Street book has a new character called Julia. And in the book um, where they, you know, they, they talk about Elmo, they talk about Cookie Monster, they talk about Big Bird, and this new character, Julia, has autism. And they talk about Julia's differences and, and how she's very similar to other children, but yet she's a little different. And I think it's so important and so great that that it's normalizing it more versus, again, segregating or pinpointing something different about someone without us knowing. So I think it's really great that we are having these conversations and that we're showing this on TV to our children so that they grow up knowing that this is normal, that this is okay, that this is accepted. Absolutely. I think it's so important for kids because like they're so accepting and like like we see it all the time with all sorts of differences that that if we start when they're young, they then we don't have to unlearn something that they've learned along the way in terms of you know um some some sort of discrimination um so yeah I agree I think it's so great that that in media we're seeing so much more representation and and meaningful honest representation and, and there's definitely some flaws I um you know there, there's certain things that still need to be fixed but I think Sesame Street has always been even historically um, one of the forerunners in terms of like, let's really normalize this. Let's like, let's fundamentally normalize it. Exactly. All right, Erin, next I want to talk about your services. So I think one of the biggest questions that many of your clients must have is if their child should first be diagnosed with ASD to access your services. So I always let families know they don't need a formal diagnosis to access our services because the, the science can be applied to more than just um, autism. Um, but the diagnosis does open a lot of doors to funding. Um, it, you know, like any mental health service that comes at a cost. Um, so I do always suggest to parents that like getting that diagnosis in hand, um, it gets, it gets you access to, to funds. So next I want to break down your services and how they can help families, but what does the initial consultation and assessment look like right from the get-go? We have three types of assessments. We have a skills assessment where we only focus on skill development. Uh, we have a behavior skill assessment where we only focus on uh, addressing those challenging behaviors. And we have a combo where we're gonna look at addressing challenging behaviors as well as increasing skills. Um, so once we decide which one of those assessments we're gonna do, that'll dictate the exact number of appointments. But we'll always start with an online appointment where my clinical team and myself will meet with the parents or the caregivers and really pinpoint what their goals are. So it'll be like an extension of that initial consult call. We'll pinpoint, you know, what do these behaviors look like? Okay, you say that they're running out of the room. What happens before they run out of the room? Do they say anything? You know, is their body language? What is said to them? Those types of things. Um, we're going to ask a million and one questions. Um, we're going to talk about good things. We're going to talk about bad things. Um, and then basically my team's going to take that information to decide, okay, what behaviors do we want to observe when we come in home? And they're going to come out into the home. They're going to um, have a couple, a series of in-home appointments. They're going to observe the family. They're going to observe the child. They're going to probably test some skills, especially if you're looking at a combo or a skills assessment, um, which might include a formalized assessment tool. Um, they're then going to take all of that information and that's going to be basically our baseline, um, which is a starting point. Where did we start so that as we move forward, we can measure our progress and say, okay, is this working or not working? 
Um, then we take all of that information and compile it into a report and review it with the parents. Um, and then at that point, that's when we start sessions and the caregiver support appointments. So those are the ones that I do. And then the sessions are the ones that my team do with the child. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. in the morning, rolled over to push the snooze button and your back goes out. You crawl to the bathroom in agonizing pain, trying to get some meds to get you through your day and your bladder doesn't quite make it. You catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you think to yourself, how did I get here and how am I going to get through this day? Imagine for a second now that you get up before the alarm even goes off. You jump out of bed, switch into your workout gear, do a nice high intensity workout with some jumping. You come into the bathroom and you catch a glimpse of yourself. You're soaking in sweat and you look at yourself and say, I totally got this. I'm ready for this day. If you would like to go from sore hitting the snooze button to jumping out of bed, learn more at unstuckphysio.com or call today at 613-897-6616. Century 21 has been a staple in the Pembroke of Petawawa area for over 45 years. At Century 21 Aspire Realty, many of our agents are born and raised right here in the Ottawa Valley. We also have close ties with the military community, having agents that are past military members and some that are military spouses. This helps to give us an in-depth understanding of the demands of the military lifestyle and the nuances of frequent relocation. Here at Century 21 Aspire Realty, we are committed to putting the client's needs first. Our agents work hard to act in a manner that is fair and ethical, as well as safe and practical. We are currently experiencing a seller's market like we have never seen before. If you are thinking of selling your property, call us first. Our social media campaigns are the best in the business. We offer professional photography, 3D home tours, and social media promotions across several platforms. Whether you are considering buying or selling, any one of our Century 21 Aspire Realty agents would be happy to assist you in the process. Check us out at www.aspirerealty.c21.ca or give us a call at 613-687-1687. Are you falling behind on your invoicing? Are your expenses under control? Are you spending your free time doing the books? Good bookkeeping is what keeps your business on track and positioned for growth and sustainability. And in order to manage your business effectively, you need to know how your business is doing financially and need accurate financial information. That's where the Ledger Lady team comes in. Our female-run bookkeeping team of seven certified and experienced bookkeepers offers professional bookkeeping, consulting, and custom accounting to help keep your finances organized so you can focus on growing your business. Get your books in order and contact the Ledger Lady today at 613-628- 3773 or email info at ledgerlady.ca.
Hey, it's Danielle Delaney, Ottawa Valley blogger and podcast host of The Mom Files, and you're listening to the OV Boss Babes podcast with your host, Holly Molinar. Erin, I love that you actually start with the parent, the parents or the caregivers through family training first, instead of focusing on the issue with the child. I think this is so important for anyone to get to know the family, their dynamics, their routines, strengths, and weaknesses first before diving right into, okay, what's wrong with my child? Why are they like this? And how do we fix it? So why is ABA parent training essential to treatment with the children and the very first step? So for me, it's, it's really a passion for me. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'd worked in like center programs a lot in the past. I, when I first started in, in the industry, I was in home and then I moved to centers and, and even a school program. Um, and while those were so wonderful in, in the way that they addressed, you know, like, especially the school program, that's a whole other conversation, but that's a wonderful modality. Um, but I found what they were all really missing was the involvement with the parents and providing them with skills. Um, so when I started my business, I knew that I wanted to have that be an essential part. And initially we started it with just, um, all the sessions obviously are in home. And then we have our programs all include a parent element where the parent actually does the skill with their child too, instead of just my team member doing it. Um, but it really sort of morphed into realizing that there was this need for more one-on-one time with the parents. Um, we found that it's a, it's a mixed bag in terms of the, the information that parents come to us with. Um, and even sometimes between parents, like I've got some moms who have, have read everything they can get their hands on. They've like absorbed everything on the internet they could possibly find about their child's diagnosis. And for them, I find that we can kind of start at step three or four, but then I have other parents who are like, we just got this diagnosis and we just got the funding and we signed up for services. And like, I'm still kind of in the, the tailspin of all of this new information. And I find for those parents, like we have to start at the beginning and we have to go slow. And, and sometimes we even start with like, let's really dig into what is autism and what does that look like specifically in your family? And, and what did you think autism was before you got this diagnosis? Um, and, and, and maybe we even talk a little bit about the, the grief that comes along with getting a, a complex diagnosis like that. Um, so for me, it really kind of morphed it from this, this natural need that I found in, in the industry. Um, but also on a, on a practical level, parents and caregivers are who are going to be with clients and, and, and their kids, like my clients, their kids for their life, right? They're, they're going to, I, as much as I love my clients and I love the families that I, we work with and, you know, selfishly, I'd love to always have them with us. Realistically, I would like them to develop the skills as a family to not need our support anymore and, and, and to go forward. And they can do that in, in a much more meaningful way if they, they truly learn what it is that we were doing, which I found was sort of lacking in a center environment where, um, parents are dropping their kids off and picking them up. And, and, you know, Holly, you're a parent, I'm a parent. When you're doing that drop off and pick up, you've got 17 other things on your brain. And like, you, you're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner and all that stuff. And it's just not the best time to really get that information across. Um, so yeah, that, that's why I, I made it such a fundamental part of what we do. Um, and then I also think the burnout in this population specifically for parents is just like, so outrageously high um 
that sometimes just giving them a space each week, like some parents, like I've, um, I've had parents where they'll spend a good chunk of our appointment just kind of venting about what went on for the week. And sometimes that's what they need. And while that's not generally our purpose of being there, sometimes they just needed that moment of like, oh my God, all the kids this week, it was like, they all wanted to see my head explode. And, and sometimes we need that. Um, and, and just having that space is, is really meaningful. So I guess this brings me to my next question, Erin. How do you work with parents to formulate a plan that will help reduce problematic or harmful behaviors at home? So um, it, it's really kind of different for each family. Um, and, and I always get a leg up if it's a client that's also going through ABA because my team does a lot of like the, the assessment already. Um, and they've already sort of identified the function of the behavior and that kind of thing. Um, but really for me, when we're formulating what we're actually going to do to navigate the behavior, it's about like what you kind of referenced before, really getting a feel for the family. Um, because there's, there's lots of different ways that we can, you know, address and escape and maintain behavior, for example. But it's going to look different for every family based on their dynamics, their individual resources, um, number of kids makes a huge deal, um, outside support, all of those things. So our recommendations are going to look different. So for me, it's a, when I'm formulating a plan with the family, um, I often make the joke to parents of like, I'm not married to how we do this. I'm married to your success. So I don't care if we have to go back to the drawing board 17 times to figure out how to, you know, reduce this challenging behavior that, that we're working on. Um, I'm much more concerned on us working on reducing it in a way that doesn't burn out a parent. So, you know, I have some families who have more social resources, more time resources, more financial resources. And I find that they can do some of our more intensive approaches. They can, they can, you know, maybe clock more hours doing those types of things. Whereas my families that don't have as many of those resources, that's where my team and I have to be more creative and we have to put in a little bit more effort. Um, and it's something that, that we often remind ourselves of like, no, 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 this is, this is our time to put in more legwork, not the parents' time. Erin, I don't know if you ever listened to my podcast with Alana Robinson from Uncommon Sense Parenting. I had her back on in December where we talked about effective parenting strategies. Um, but in your case, I want to focus on punishment because as parents, we're quick to punish. But why is punishment not effective? And why does it just not work? So it, I feel like it's, it's always such a loaded gun when I talk about punishment with parents. Um, and, and one, because like most of us were punished as kids and then, you know, like we turned out okay. Um, which, which, you know, is a whole other thing of sometimes we didn't. Um, but for me, it's, it's not so much that like punishment in theory doesn't work um, because we all have situations um, where we avoid punishment. So we don't engage in the behavior that, that, you know, like most of us don't speed above a certain threshold because we know that that's where the cops are gonna pull us over and we don't wanna get that ticket. Um, but I find that really punishment doesn't always, or actually often doesn't accomplish the goal that a parent thinks that they're trying to accomplish and usually has negative impacts. Um, so like, I think back to the times that I was grounded as a, as a teen and, you know, go and sit in your room and think about it and no technology, which at the time was like, you know, TV or talking to your friends on the family phone. Um, but, you know, none of those things. And I don't know about you, Holly, but like, 
I did nothing but stew in my bedroom. I was just in there thinking about how much that sucked and my parents were the worst and they didn't understand me. And like that thing I did wasn't even that bad. And like, if they even knew what the situation was, like all of those things, that's what's going on in my head. At no point am I sitting there going, how am I going to become a better human because of this punishment? <laughs> it's so true. If I think back like to all my diary entries, I kid you not, Erin, as you're telling me this, I think that's the majority of them. And the boy that I liked in the class that week, it was why my parents were wrong in this situation, why they were so mean. And the boy that I liked that week. <laughs> exactly right so I feel like a lot of times with punishment like it just straight up doesn't teach what you want instead which is like such a huge piece because that's ultimately like most parents punish from a place of fear they're so scared that you're going to become something not good that they need to punish that out of you but really they, they completely like skipped over the step of like well what do we want them to do instead um and that's where my team's really big on when we're looking at challenging behavior we're looking for a replacement because there is a need that that kid's filling with that challenging behavior. And we maybe don't understand it, but that really doesn't matter. All we need to do is figure out a way to help them understand a different way to get that need met. Um, but I find for a lot of parents, like the punishment, it's almost like a habit because that's what we were exposed to. We don't know anything different. Um, and I think it's something that Alana does focus on in, in some of her stuff, because I've read some of her posts as well, is is the idea that like if you didn't learn how to do that of course it's going to be hard to do now mm -hmm. and and you, you have to learn different ways um and it's not going to be easy and you know I know even for myself as a parent it it becomes so easy to revert back to like what you were exposed to as a kid in terms of like how your parents parented um but my husband and I often have conversations about like okay but what did that accomplish like when my parents did that what did that accomplish? And, and a lot of times it, the only thing it accomplished was driving the relationship further and further apart. Um, I think about most of the things that I was grounded over um, that, that were probably like a hormonal, emotional misunderstanding between me and my parents. And if, if it had, if they had come at it from a place of like, okay, what's going on with you? Like, you know, you're, you're really reactive today. Um, you know, what's happening? Did something happen at school? You know, it, it, it would have made such a huge difference. And that's, that's why I don't like punishment. Um, in theory, it works. It definitely, you know, like, we can come up with so many different examples where um, the threat of uh, an aversive situation being applied in response to a behavior is, is something that people will then not engage in the behavior for. Um, but I think the same as like the death penalty, which is obviously a very extreme example do we really want a society of people that only avoid engaging in these seriously negative behaviors because we might kill them for it? Or do we want them engaging in these behaviors, these pro-social behaviors, because they want to and they see the meaning and the benefit in it? Erin, I feel like I can already visualize so many of my listeners nodding and shaking their heads, agreeing with you, because I know that I'm relating to so much of this, especially even when you're just saying, you know, go to your room and think about what you did. Yeah, you're right. We were so self-absorbed. We are still self-absorbed that, you know, it, those, those learning capabilities, those 
understanding and realization does not happen until our brain is fully developed later in life to be able to be like, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. That was wrong. Look at the outcome. How did this affect other people or my friends or my parents in this situation? So of course, you know, we're not going to think about what we did. We're just going to be thinking about the next thing that we're doing or writing in our diaries or, or, you know, thinking about what we're doing later in the day. We're not thinking about our actions and the outcomes that have happened. And this actually brings me to my next question for you, Erin, which is the word no. No is common. And it's probably actually one of the first words our children learn constantly hearing negative feedback, which can be detrimental to a child's healthy development. So tell us, Erin, why should the word no be limited? And what words or phrases should we be using instead? So no is one of those words that like, I don't know about you, Holly, but like, it can be a reactive word like to hear no is is for an adult for a child like is not necessarily a fun thing but I think the bigger piece is hearing no with nothing else um like think about like if you showed up at a restaurant and you're like hey can we get a table for two and the hostess just says no and walks away no instead the host is going to say oh we don't have a table available right now we'll have one available in half an hour so that's like, I feel like that's a good example for our kids. Instead of no, you can't have the iPad. Nope, we're not going to play with the iPad right now, but you can have it after dinner. You can have it when Johnny's done with it. You can have it, whatever, some uh, anchorable amount of time that they can understand. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's more my issue with no, because I know you've probably seen me post about it is it's just the no on its own. It's it's or the no, because I said so, or because I'm your parent and I get it. Sometimes we don't have time for like a long-winded response, but even like, no, but give me a few minutes and, and we can talk about it, depending on how your kid's understanding is, like that can help. Um, but it, it really, like in a lot of situations, sometimes I find just the perspective of like, how would this be received if I was doing this to an adult um, can, can make a big difference, right? Like we would never just like say no because I said so to an adult. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe some people do. I don't do that to adults. Um, and Holly, I'm not sure if your daughter's in the stage yet. She, she probably is um, where like, no, but like can't fully articulate exactly why no. We wanna show them that, right? We wanna show them that you can, you know, like no, because this, like my daughter right now, like if something's not like just right, it's wrong and we've ruined her life. So showing her and teaching her like, hey, just explain to us what's wrong. Explain to us what about it is not right. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't always work. Um, but that's why I don't like no, because I find it, it just doesn't give much information other than you can't have, which for most of us is, is elicits an icky feeling. People talk a lot about the need for boundaries. And let's face it, our kids push the boundaries every day. We all have stories growing up about how we tested our parents' limits, but what does the word boundaries really mean? And why is it important for parents to set healthy boundaries with their child? So I think boundaries are one, one of those things that like is, is just um, such a common buzzword right now that I feel like everybody's got it on their brain, you know, always thinking about it. What does it mean? Um, and I think when you think about boundaries in terms of like strangers, super clear to understand there are like a whole list of behaviors that like you would just not accept from a, a stranger you're not going to accept them standing like two inches away from you you're not going to accept them like caressing your face um you're probably not going to accept them speaking to you rudely you're just going to walk away 
Um, but I find the closer and closer a person gets to you, the harder and harder it is to like have a clear set of boundaries. Because like with a stranger, those boundaries are like so socially acceptable. Nobody's like, well, why Holly? Why don't you let the person at the bus stop that you don't know stand two inches away from you? Like what's wrong? Everybody understands that. Um, but I find with boundaries, like with family or with kids, it's so hard because everybody's got different ones. And, and really like boundaries are, are your limits of treatment that you will and won't accept. And they're gonna look completely different for each of us. And that's, that's where I find it so hard for parents with kids because we, we look around us and we, we look at our examples, whether it's our own parents or, or other parent figures, or even like, you know, parents that are parenting at the same time as us for the boundaries that they set with their kids. Um, and that's where it can be hard because like, you know, Holly, your boundaries with your kids are gonna be different than my boundaries with my kid. And, and they should be because like, I'm pretty sure we live a different life and we're different people. Um, but I find with kids, it's so hard because like you love them so much but you've got to set a limit. And especially for parents, um, setting that limit can help to avoid burnout. But what I find more so is an issue with parents, and I'm noticing it more and more the more time I spend with them one-on-one, -on -one, is I don't know if it's so much an issue of like their boundaries being like crossed with their kids, but more so they're crossing their own boundaries. So like they are saying, I need time to myself. Um, I don't like it when they do this, whatever, but then in moments where they maybe don't have help or whatever, they're allowing that and it's sending kids mixed signals, right? And, and kids are super confusing and in that like they, they need it to be very clear. Um, but I think boundaries are so hard with our kids because it, it feels like telling, telling them no to something that we could maybe give them right? Like, oh, okay, I could maybe give you five more minutes of my time. Is that really a big deal? But if that five minutes is the only five minutes you have to yourself, then yes, that is a big deal and you need to give it to you. Um, but kids aren't going to just know boundaries. They're, they're going to they're gonna continually test them. You're going to have to keep reminding them what they are. Um, the, the upside is, is that as they get older, you've taught them how to enforce boundaries for themselves. And especially for my neurodivergent kids, they're at much more risk of all sorts of like social harm in terms of um, them having trouble with certain social cues, you want to model boundaries for them so that they know what somebody's saying. Like I'm, you know, for example, hitting, I think that's one that parents have a hard time with when their kid's hitting them. It's okay to tell your kid, I'm not going to let you hit me. It's, it's, it's not going to be fun. They're not going to love it. They're not going to immediately stop and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, mom. I'm never going to hit you ever again. Um, and if your kid does, can you send them to my house and we do a little swap? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely boundaries is a whole big thing. And I feel like, you know, we could do a whole podcast episode, get a lanner on and we'll talk about it. For yeah, too. That's right. Um, but I think for a lot of parents, it's, it's modeling those boundaries and then sticking to them and, and, and not feeling guilty about them. You're allowed to take time to yourself. You're allowed to not let your kid hit you, hit you. That doesn't make you a bad parent. So Aaron, just like you were saying earlier that we all parent differently, we also all have different children. None of our children are the same. And so I, I know I, as a parent, I constantly compare my child to others. And I read your post recently about your daughter having low sleep needs and not necessarily having a bedtime routine. And I resonated with this fully because our daughter is the exact same way. So I feel that this is a great way to end our discussion today by just sharing what we 
as parents need to stop comparing our children and our routines to other families. Yes. Um, first, uh, cheers from one low sleep needs mom to another. It's, it's a fun, <laughs> fun ride. Um, but I honestly, like, I think comparison can be helpful in terms of like super general stuff. Like generally speaking, did you, do your kids start walking between one and two years? Cool. Sweet. It's when we start getting really specific and like start looking at like tiny little details and not the whole picture that I think everybody starts to lose. Um, because like we had talked about earlier, like we all lead different lives. Our routines are so different. So of course, like our routines are going to be different. And like for my daughter, for example, like with her low sleep needs, she's never attended daycare. Like that was something that it just didn't, it wasn't part of our life. It just happened that she doesn't have to attend daycare. So like, we've never had to do the, like, get her ready, get us ready, get everybody like out the door by seven 30, five days a week. So maybe if that was part of our life, like maybe we would have a more typical bedtime routine. And I do find for my families that um, whether it's work or, or some other dynamic that makes their life structured in that way, that bedtime is usually not an issue. Um, now it still can be. And for those families, it's really challenging. Um, but I, I think really like if it works for your family, whatever it is, then great. And if it doesn't work, then it's time to look at a change, but don't just look at a change because Susie at the park said that her kid sleeps for 12 hours because like spoiler alert, she might be lying. Um, <laughs> because it happens. Pe people do lie. Um, but also like great for Susie and her kid but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with your kid. And I spent like Holly, I'm sure you spent time. I spent so much time Googling on the internet, a thousand percent convinced that like I was ruining my child. Her brain was never going to develop appropriately because she doesn't sleep enough. Um, and now at four and a half, she doesn't sleep amazing, but she gets between nine and 10 hours of sleep a night and like, w whatever, we'll go with it. And that's what works for her. And I know exactly. it, it's so hard. It's so hard not to compare. And that was one thing that we had seen with our daughter. Um, and I, my sister and I both had babies at the same time. Our daughters are three months apart. So I was constantly seeing her daughter advance more quickly. It seemed than our daughter was. And same thing. Like she was taking naps twice a day when my daughter was already down to one nap a day. And I was like, wait, something's wrong here. Something's not adding up. And it's taken me so much time and so many conversations with other moms and parents being like, no, guess what? Our child doesn't even nap at all. Or our child, you know, we can never wake them up because they're just a constant sleeper. Everybody's different. And I think that, you know, it's going to change our life too and our dynamics when we have our second child and seeing how different that they are from Tatum, our daughter. And so I just think it's just so important to have these conversations and reiterate that we should not be comparing our children to other people's kids and other people's routines and what they're doing, because that's what works for them. And I mean, I know it sounds so cliche, but what works for someone else might not work for you. And that's okay. You just have to find your own rhythm. Exactly. No. And I find for a lot of families, like I, I suggest they look at the rest of the family. Like, how does everybody else sleep? You know, like I've complained about my daughter's sleep for so long and being so stressed about it. But honestly, the other night, my husband and I were both wide awake at two o'clock in the morning. And I was looking at him and I'm like, this, this is, this is why she sleeps weird. Like we <laughs> yeah. randomly wake up in the middle of the night as grownups and like, you can't get back to sleep and you don't necessarily know why. And there's not a justifiable reason. And it doesn't mean that every night we wake up at two o'clock in the morning. Most of the time we don't. 
Um, but I think sleep especially is one that like it, it's there's such variance across humans that like to compare how your kid sleeps to somebody else's kid sleeping is I don't know it just feels like a self sort form of self torture that I engaged in enough and and if you haven't done it yet I highly recommend you avoid it. Well, I appreciate I appreciate you Aaron so much for sharing this and making this more mainstream because you know we just always see on social media all the all the great things that are going on you know with with parents and I love the I love where we are now in social media that people are being more vocal and honest. Honesty is the biggest yes. thing. Yes. All right, we are going to move into my rapid 10. So rapid fire questions, Erin. So here we go. How many clients will you take on at a time? Oh, it depends on team members, but like maximum four clients per instructor therapist. When is your next introduction to ABA services session? Oh, I haven't planned one yet, but I do want to do one at the start of the summer. What's a great book you'd recommend for a parent or parents looking to learn more about autism? Oh, there's, I don't know. I feel like there's so many different resources. That's a tough one. Um, it's not specifically related to autism, but the whole brain child is a, is a great resource for parents in terms of just like understanding child development and the whole piece of a kid. What are three coping strategies you'd recommend for kids with ADHD? Oh, that is a good one. Movement. So much movement. Um, a balanced diet, not a like no processed foods, no sugar diet, because that's so unrealistic and unfair, but a balanced diet. Um, and oh, a third one, some sort of routine that works for them. Why is sensory play important for a child's development? There, there are so many pieces of sensory play and, and I feel like that that's more an OT question in terms of like all of the benefits, but like really there's the exploration piece they they're working on fine motor skills um it it's i don't know it's so hard to replicate something like that that you can just see that there's there's something happening in the brain that's that's beneficial so i love sensory play so much i know it's not tuesday but what's your tip tuesday for parents this week oh a tip tuesday for parents this week would be it's going to be beautiful and muddy and take your kids outside and get all squishy and muddy and dirty and don't stress about it just throw their clothes in the washing machine when you get inside what's a fun therapeutic activity for children regardless if they are receiving aba therapy or not play play is like the best way to learn and engage and build rapport. And it's always what my team starts with. And yeah, my team can get so silly. And it's like, it's the greatest thing to see. I know you love your job so much, Erin. I mean, I can just tell the passion and especially uh, the emotion in your voice earlier, but what do you enjoy most about your job? I think the thing I enjoy most about my job in this stage is working with parents and the time that I get to spend with parents. I think they're uh, kind of the forgotten ones in, in the process. Um, they're kind of, you know, they give all the information, but nobody really stops and asks how they're doing. Um, so yeah, that's my favorite part right now is, is getting to really get to know the parents and support them. And Erin, I know you're a longtime listener, so you know this question is coming. What is one local business that you think everyone should know about? 
Oh, everybody needs to know about Out and About in Nature Forest School. Um, it's a forest school out of Beechburg. Aria is amazing. My daughter goes there two days a week. Um, and honestly, like other than family and friends, Aria is the only person that we've ever left my daughter with. So like if that's not um, a five-star review, I'm not sure what is. And for my families, my neurodivergent kids, Aria and I were talking yesterday and she's not going to shy away from your kids if they have extra needs, as long as you tell her what's going on and, and it's, you know, she can make sure it'll be a good fit. That's great. I see you sharing uh, her socials all the time on your social media pages. And I'm like, are these two related? Like you just share so much. So, I mean, I can definitely see that you proudly support her business, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's been wonderful for my daughter. She came home soaked in mud from head to toe yesterday, two sets of clothes, and she had the best day. What did she say? She said she had a soaker. Oh, she had a blast. <laughs> oh that's amazing. Erin, I can't thank you enough for this conversation today. Like I said, it's opened my eyes and to so many more resources. And, and it's just so nice to be able to talk to another parent and uh, especially in in learning capacities that, uh, you know, that are unknown for so many. So thank you so much. Um, but I want everyone to be able to follow you and learn more about ABA therapy and dragonfly family learning services. So tell everybody where they can find you on social media, as well as your website. Thanks so much, Holly. This has been so fun. Uh, you can find me on Facebook dragonfly FLS. So like family learning services, or you can find me on Instagram, same handle, Dragonfly FLS. Uh, and then the website is Dragonfly Family and Learning Services. No, it's dragonflyfamilyandlearning.ca. Um, so that's where you can find us online. I would love to connect with everyone. Um, if you listen to the podcast, like for sure, shoot me a DM if you have any questions about anything that I talked about, because I'd love to chat more. And like Aaron said earlier, everybody, your first consultation appointment is free. So be sure to book a call if you have any questions check out her website. And she's got a wonderful team, a female led team, no doubt of therapists that are uh, always available to help you out and, uh, and help guide your family on the right path. Thank you everybody so much for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Obi Boss's podcast on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and rate review and subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you so much.